Howdy folks, this is Matt Sewell and you're listening to episode 34 of the Popecast. The podcast about popes for history buffs who don't have the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. Well, it's a Popecast Christmas episode this week. Not only did this guy take his turn at fighting off the heresy that had infected a majority of the world's bishops at the time, but he stood by one of the church's greatest bishops and soon-to-be saints, and he may have even been the one to officially declare the day in which we celebrate Jesus' birth. This week, it's the 34th successor of St. Peter, the Pope who made Christmas official, St. Julius I. As is the case with most of the ancient pontiffs, we only know of Julius I's early life that he was a Roman by birth, born somewhere probably around 308 AD, and that his dad's name was Rusticus. Rusticus? I don't know. Aside from all that, all we know is that Julius came of age at a key turning point in the life of the church, that, of course, being the reign of the emperor Constantine the Great and the legalization of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. In the 20 years before Julius ascended to the chair of Peter, Constantine had commenced in not only returning confiscated properties to the church, but had embarked on a building spree that not only beautified and expanded worship in gathering spaces, but also helped the no longer underground church to grow exponentially. Historian Glenn Thompson, in fact, calculated that the church in Rome during Pope Cornelius's reign decades earlier in the 250s AD had around, quote, 40 to 50 groupings equivalent to parishes and a total of at least 10,000 adherents, end quote. So when Julius I was made Pope on February 6th, 337 AD, it would have been substantially larger, not to mention much more influential to boot. Julius had been in office not even four months, though, before Constantine died. So the new Pope inherited a church not only now dealing with three petty, warring imperial sons, those being Constantine II, Constance, and Constantius II, but a church that was also still struggling under the weight of the Arian controversy, the heresy that, as some may remember, that Jesus Christ was a mere man and not divine. It had been decisively condemned in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, but still, around two-thirds of the world's bishops at the time, the proportion that held to the Arian beliefs, just don't go away overnight, right? So a dozen years had passed, of course, after Nicaea, but the drama still continued, much to Julius's joy, I am sure. The bishops of the Eastern Church had been dead set on making Arianism the universal belief in their part of the Christian world as soon as the council closed, but Athanasius, the annoyingly orthodox patriarch of Alexandria, stood in their way. The uh, quote-unquote anti-Athanasian party, as it became known, had successfully booted Athanasius from office once, but Constantine II managed to reinstall him in his post in late 337. The bishops in opposition weren't about to give up, and this is where Julius comes in. Athanasius's haters sent a letter to the Pope regaling him with all sorts of trumped-up criminal and immoral charges supposedly committed by the Patriarch. All of them were false, of course, and Athanasius sent his own letter, but after the Eastern heretics scoffed, the Pope thought it best if the two sides just met in person and summoned everybody to a showdown in the Eternal City. And so, Julius I convened a synod in Rome in 342. Now, thankfully, nobody brought a Pachamama, but uh, there were still plenty of Pacha drama, shall we say. 
Okay, forgive me. That was a silly joke. Anyway, only one side showed up to this synod called by Julius, and Athanasius was really there basically because he had no place else to go, having been banished from Alexandria by his enemies for a second time. Rome, to its credit, recognized him as a legit bishop, uh, but the eastern bishops, instead of arriving themselves, instead wrote a letter to Julius explaining their absence, and he as you might imagine, was none too pleased, mainly because they wrote with a tone of arrogant, petulant children, to say nothing of their disrespect of the papacy itself. And that letter that Julius wrote back, incredibly, is still is still in existence, and so we can hear Julius's incredulity as he writes back to the bishops to rebuke them. Julius said, quote, I have read your letter which was brought to me by my presbyters, Elpidius and Philoxinus, And I am surprised to find that whereas I wrote to you in charity and with conscious sincerity, you have replied to me in an unbecoming and contentious temper, for the pride and arrogance of the writers is plainly exhibited in that letter. Yet such feelings are inconsistent with the Christian faith, for what was written in a charitable spirit ought likewise to be answered in a spirit of charity and not of contention. And was it not a token of charity? to send presbyters to sympathize with them that are in suffering, and to desire those who had written to me to come thither, that the questions at issue might obtain a speedy settlement, and all things be duly ordered, so that our brethren might no longer be exposed to suffering, and that you might escape further calumny? But something seems to show that your temper is such as to force us to conclude that even in the terms in which you appeared to pay honor to us, you have expressed yourselves under the disguise of irony. The presbyters also whom we sent to you, and who ought to have returned rejoicing, did on the contrary return sorrowful, on account of the proceedings they had witnessed among you. And I, when I had read your letter, after much consideration, kept it to myself, thinking that after all some of you would come, and there would be no need to bring it forward, lest if it should be openly exhibited it should grieve many of our brethren here. But when no one arrived, and it became necessary that the letter should be produced, I declare to you... They were all astonished and were hardly able to believe that such a letter had been written by you at all, for it is expressed in terms of contention rather than of charity, end quote. A couple of things to note here. Whenever he mentions presbyters, he's referring to priests, right? But a couple of other things, of course, uh, to mention about Julius's character. One, he clearly isn't afraid of speaking bluntly to his sons who are acting really in open disobedience. The church would surely be in a better place of course, if all of her bishops had such candor, right? But then secondly, and to my mind more importantly here, at the end, notice that Julius held out in releasing the letter, reading it to others, uh, until the very last minute before he exposed those bishops' pride and arrogance to the rest gathered in Rome and in his courts. Uh, And that showed his willingness to have been wrong, to maybe have been potentially misunderstood the letter, or to the very least, given the writers a benefit of the doubt and, and a chance to rethink their words and maybe seek forgiveness or something by coming to Rome in person. And such mercy shows Julius's character, again, because, heck, in a charged time like that, and not to excuse acting in uncharity or anything, but no one probably would have blamed him for flying off the handle a bit more. But in any case, Julius was on the side of Athanasius to his own mortal end, and succeeded, thankfully, in finally restoring him to Alexandria in 346. But sadly, the great saintly bishop would again be exiled not once, not twice, but three more times by Arian troublemakers of all stripes, before finally being able to return to Alexandria unmolested and live out the rest of his days 
in relative peace in 366, and that was 14 years after Julius's death. But I digress. Now, one of the lasting legacies of that particular episode in history is that it points to the early church's reverence for the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, over the whole of Christendom. And we can see this by Julius all but you know, scoffing in, the sa- in that very same letter to the uh, Eusebian bishops when he said, quote, Are you ignorant that the custom has been for word to be written first to us? And then for a just decision to be passed from this place. This place, of course, referring to the chair of St. Peter. And the rest, meaning that it was pretty well established already by then that the Pope had the final say. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been so incredulous. Now, aside from the Arian drama, sadly, little else is known about Julius's 15 years as Bishop of Rome. We do know, however, that he was a builder of the church, both in architecture and in population. Um, He constructed two basilicas, those now known to us as Santa Maria and Trastevere and the Church of the Twelve Apostles. And then he also built three other churches over uh, various cemeteries outside of the city of Rome. In addition to that, during his time also may have come the first calendar celebrating the feast days of the martyrs on specific days of the year, and a sort of an ancient version of the Roman calendar that we use today. St. Julius I died on April 12th, 352, and was venerated as a saint soon thereafter. Julius's legacy is perhaps most popularly tied, though, not to anything we've already covered, something I hinted at at the beginning, but instead to the date of Christmas. To be fair, the documents granted from which this claim is actually pulled may not have actually been written by Julius himself, but the timing of when Catholicism began popularly celebrating the birth of Christ as its own specific feast day still happens to coincide more than likely with Julius's papacy. So uh, a little backstory on that. So right before Constantine legalized Christianity in 313, there really wasn't a universal date for celebrating Christ's birth. So church fathers like Origen, St. Irenaeus, and Tertullian, all of whom were writing in the late 100s and the early 200s, didn't actually list Christmas or its date on their collection of popular feast days. But that said, in 204, Hippolytus of Rome, an early church historian, did list December 25th as the birth date of Jesus and actually noted March 25th as the date of his death to boot. Uh, And that little piece, the latter piece, will be uh, important in just a second. Now, bouncing back to the 300s, we do know for certain that Pope Liberius, a subject of a past uh, Popecast episode on the Infallibility series, Uh, who reigned just after Julius I, celebrated Christmas on December 25th. And we also know that the great saints, Gregory Nazianzus and John Chrysostom, preached sermons on Christmas in the 370s and the 380s. So all of that means that there is more than a little chance that the official proclamation of December 25th as the official day to celebrate Christ's birth fell during Julius's papacy, The letter attributed to Julius, again, perhaps a forgery, bears 350 AD as the year in which the date was officially proclaimed, but, you know, 337 to 352 is a long time and makes up, you know, just about half of the time between Constantine legalizing Christianity and Liberius uh, historically celebrating Christmas in Rome. Now, the reason for December 25th as the, the date of the birth of Christ wasn't simply a shot in the dark for what it's worth, and neither was it, as it seems 
it's universally thought nowadays that Christmas was just a copycat or a baptizing of pagan holidays like Saturnalia or Sol Invictus, the the Feast of the Unconquered Sun that was a Roman feast. And actually, odds are, ironically, that Sol Invictus was in fact a copycat of Christmas, given that it wasn't an annual festival and wasn't even created until 274 AD. And that's actually 70 years, if you remember, after Hippolytus called uh, dibs, if you will, on December 25th for Christianity. And then for Saturnalia, it's likely that the proximity to Christmas was was just mere coincidence. Many cultures, as, as many of you might know, down through the ages have celebrated feast days for the change in seasons in various pagan religions um, due to agriculture and other things. And, and December 17th through December 23rd, when Saturnalia was celebrated, coincides, of course, with the winter solstice. Now, as for why December 25th was picked by the church, there are theories that St. John the Baptist's conception and birth held the key. So the timing of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, his service in the temple when the angel announced John's conception, as we read at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, coincided with a specific Jewish feast when, if we add six months to it, corresponds to another feast, which happens to be about 40 weeks before the end of December. And that six-month period is significant because remember that Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, was six months pregnant with him when Mary, Jesus's mother, came to her with Jesus newly in her womb. And then another theory comes actually from Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI himself in his book Spirit of the Liturgy. Uh, He also rebukes the whole pagan holiday copycat thing, but he notes that Jesus's birth is related to the date of his death which Hippolytus, remember, had noted to be March 25th. Now, the Jews uh, from, I mean, antiquity, uh, dating all the way back to Moses himself, had a concept called integral age, that, are, uh, that being that a righteous person dies on the date of their conception. So if Jesus died on March 25th, then he was conceived on March 25th. And nine months after March 25th is, of course, December 25th. Now, say what you will, some may scoff, but I think it is certainly reasonable to think that God, who has a purpose for everything, would fulfill such a concept to the fullest with his own son. Don't you agree? Well, that's it for this week. Since it's still Advent, and part of Advent, at least for us Catholics, is remembering that Jesus will come again, and that we'll all be made to account for the integrity of our lives, not to be uh, morose here at the end of this episode, but uh, in light of that, here's a short snippet from the the very end of that same letter that we read from uh, of Julius earlier in the episode, the salty response back to the Arian bishops. So in this piece, he's requesting that they cease their witch hunt and repent. Here's Julius. Quote, I ask of you that such things may no longer be, but that you will denounce in writing those persons who attempt them, so that the churches may no longer be afflicted, nor any bishop or priest be treated with insult, nor anyone be compelled to act contrary to his judgment as they have represented to us, lest we become a laughing stock among the heathen, and above all, lest we excite the wrath of God against us. For every one of us shall give account in the day of judgment of the things which he has done in this life. May we all be possessed with the mind of God, so that the churches may recover their own bishops and rejoice evermore in Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom to the Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. End quote. Well, thanks as always for listening. A quick 
couple of requests for you before we go. First, if you enjoy the Popecast, would you be willing to take a couple of minutes and leave us a review on iTunes? The more positive reviews we get, the more likely it will be shown to others in search results, and the more folks can, of course, then learn about the Popes and their history. So we'd be really grateful for those reviews, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show and read those uh, live if uh, for anyone who leaves a review. And then secondly... If you'd like to help us continue producing these episodes, they're not free to produce. We always want to make sure that they're free to listen to, of course. Uh, Consider joining us on Patreon uh, by supporting our work and by going to our site, thepopecast.fm, and clicking the Become a Patron link. So it's thepopecast.fm. Patrons get early access to every new Popecast episode and receive an exclusive Popecast sticker. And then as some extra incentive, folks at the Linus tier get to have a question answered on a future episode and those giving it the clement tier name for pope save clement pope number four four dollars per episode get to pick their popes of choice for two future episodes um and speaking of patrons we'd like to give a, a shout out and a thank you to jim our newest patron so thanks jim so check it out if you haven't yet again that's at thepopecast.fm under the become a patron link and lastly in between episodes you can always find us on instagram twitter and facebook at the popecast As we close this episode, we ask for the intercession of Pope St. Julius I, that we may have the courage to stand up for the truth, to stand by our friends, and to live lives of charity and integrity. Pope St. Julius I, pray for us. Until next time.